Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm excited to, um, to be joined today by Jim Hackett, the president and CEO of the Ford Motor Company. Before that, Jim was the CEO of Grand Rapids-based office furniture company, Steelcase, for 20 years, retiring in 2014. And I just want to start by thanking you for being here. Thank you for spending time with our people, and thanks for being at Talks at GS. David, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be up here with you, too. Well, I appreciate it. An honor for me. And I'm going to start, as I always do, with these interviews, I always like to go back to the beginning because I think personal history and, and, um, and where people come from is important. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about your upbringing in Ohio. You were a football player, and I know that football played a big role in, um, in your life. Your father was also a football player. He was an All-American at Ohio State. Your brother was an OSU linebacker um, who played the 1969 Rose Bowl. Yeah. You know, I see that All-American stat about your dad and the Rose Bowl about your brother. At the, anything, at, the wrong, at the wrong university. At the wrong university, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but just talk about, talk about the early influence in your sure. life. Talk about sports. Talk about how this, you think, influenced you as you, you, bet. you were growing up. There's two other brothers uh, mm -hmm. that were uh, Columbia and Dartmouth grads. And I was um, uh, the fourth of, of four boys, and we ran out of money. So, <laughs> so I learned that I, uh, I had to play. I loved football, but I knew that I was going to pay for college. So that's how I, I got drafted into that. The interesting thing about the four brothers, it was Irish Catholic, super competitive. Mm -hmm. Like people in the neighborhood, we'd go, hey, let's, let's go play football. They go, no, because the Hackett's always getting fights. <laughs> so uh, it trained me in a way that my brothers say I was a sister they never had. So I was the, I was the peacemaker. So I want you to kind of start with that. I was irreverent to go to another place. As the youngest, you were the peacemaker? I was a peacemaker. I was pretty big, too. So I, I, had, I had some sway physically in those fights. Um, because but, my, I, had, I had two brothers. I was yeah. the oldest. And my, myself and my middle brother, we used to beat the crap out of my younger brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the fact that you were the peacemaker, that's, that's an interesting Well, because dynamic. this is recorded, I want to make sure they don't think they ever did that, <laughs> just so you know. So you, um, you went on, as we said, you went on to Michigan, and you played under legendary coach uh, Bo, Bo Schembechler. And he had, a, you know, he had a coaching philosophy that you said guided you on and off the field. And, and you know, talk about him, very famous leader, you know, his book, Bo's Lasting Lessons. Talk a little bit about his influence. Yeah, an extraordinary man first. Um, just a quick story, the day, the week he's dying, I come back from a trip running Steelcase, and I call to say hello to him. It's the week of the high State game. And I call on a Wednesday, the game's on Saturday, and he's frustrated because he's been trying to find a bone marrow donor for one of the quarterbacks who played for him 30 years earlier, wow. and, he, and, he, and he didn't succeed. The guy died. So here is a man who's going to die in 48 hours, and he's worried about that. You see what I mean? He, now, he didn't know his, his end was 48, but he said to me, you better come see me because I'm not feeling very good. The, the, the biggest lesson from him is that the center of leadership is integrity. So he was one of the guys that in a world where there was a lot of cheating, his dad took a civil, a civil service exam as a fireman, and the guy he was competing with got the answers to the test before the test was administered. 
and his dad says, I'm not going to look at him. So at home that night, the test is over, his dad doesn't get the job, and Bo says, you could have had the job if you just looked at the answers. And he goes, well, who wants to win that way? So imagine I'm 18 years old, and he's telling me that story coming to University of Michigan. And, and we really lived our life that way. And when I became athletic director, I, I made sure and told everybody that worked Great there. Great story. So you graduated in 1977, and you got your first job at Procter & Gamble before getting hired in 1981 at Steelcase. And you must have been doing something right, because at the ripe old age of 39, you became the CEO of Steelcase. And that's, I mean, that in and of itself, that's, talk a little bit about how you, how you sure. got to that position so quickly, because that's an extraordinary accomplishment. Yeah, well, uh, there's some humility in there, like being drafted at, at Michigan. But I, I gotta just share with the, the, the people in the audience that at P&G at the time I arrived, in the food division was Steve Ballmer, Meg Whitman, uh, Scott Cook, Jim Hackett, Dave Brandon, Wow. All of us were working together, and, and John Pepper, who you, I know sure. you knew, legendary sure. leader of uh, P&G, I said, who was the HR person, you know? Um, so we had, we had a great upbringing there, and my wife, who I married my last year in college, I've been, we've been together 43 years, she went to work for Steelcase before I did. So they were growing so fast that they kind of recruited me out of P&G. I'm, I'm in the company, marketing and sales kind of growing up and it's private mm -hmm. uh, Goldman hasn't been there yet and uh, uh, the family in its succession was debating whether there was an internal family candidate or go outside so they went outside and they brought a guy in and it didn't work out three years into his tenure he left while he was in the job I did I asked to step out of the company and go do a startup so I may be one of the few kind of CEOs in their 60s that actually did a startup mm -hmm. in my lifetime. And it was around the future of work when, uh, when, when we were going to have internet-based companies ordering things. In fact, Michael Dell and I both had the similar ad agency from New York, Low Direct. Mm -hmm. It was building both catalog systems for Dell and for me, uh, a company called Turnstone. And so the board came when this guy got fired. Uh, who I liked, um, they said, look, we like what you're doing better than everyone else. So I said to the chairman, oh, there's better people. I'm 39. Mm -hmm. And I liked running my own thing. And he said, well, we want you to do this. And I said, well, give me a, give me a couple days to think about it. A week later, he called me. He said, Hacken, I'm worried you can't make a decision. <laughs> I took a week. So if you were looking back at Jim Hackett, 39, when you're taking that job, now that you run that, you ran that company successfully for a long time. You've done other things. You're now you're now running Ford. What would your what would your best piece of advice be to 39 year old Jim Hackett? Well, what happens with new CEOs, and you you just can't train this in the way you come up, because even uh, and I don't want to d dismiss anyone who has a job like this. If you're chief operating officer, you always know that there's you know there's a there's somebody who's got to make the choice, and so. Uh, it took me too long, as I now look back, to realize how much the company was dependent on that clarity coming from me. Because I had a 20-year run as the CEO, I got that fixed. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I got it fixed like in three or four years. Um, but the advice is what I call uh, Roger Enrico, famous guy that ran PepsiCo, sure. said that leadership is having a point of view. 
And that's what they're looking for from the CEO. And so bringing that faster would be the thing I've, I've now learned. Mm -hmm. So after 20 years, you retired from Steelcase. Um, the retirement didn't last long. Uh, you became president and the CEO of Ford in 2017. You had met Bill Ford uh, years earlier. Um, apparently, you had bonded over football. Um, you would be the first, probably, to say that you're not a car guy, which is probably unique in Detroit. I'm so clear that I'm not. <laughs> okay. Um, so talk a little bit about what you know what. What prompted you? I'm sure Bill was, Bill was pulling, um, but how did you think about you know, making this decision and jumping in, you know, clearly a company that's being transformed? Yeah. And so how did you think about this? What attracted you to the assignment? Well, like this, the uh, Steelcase moment, I thought there were better people. I mm -hmm. told Bill that. Um, and, and if you just think of the world, there's a lot of great people that he could pull in. I came to this sense David, it's the hardest thing to explain, my family was behind this, is that my fondest day when I left Steelcase was shaking hands everybody, and they, were, they would remind me of things I can't share with you because it, it cheapens it. But the role of the CEO beyond the point of view thing that I talked mm -hmm. about, which is you're in service of these employees. Okay, so they would remind me of things we did for them, like, you know, you got the airplane to fly my family to the Mayo because, you know, we did a lot of things because it was that kind of culture where we rallied around our people, mm -hmm. okay? So I said to Bill, if I come back, I'm doing this in service of the employees. I, does that sound corny to you? Now, if you know Bill Ford, it's magic. Yeah. I didn't know, I mean, I knew him, but this is the way he sees the company too. So now you've got... He's one of my best friends. We've got a perfect symmetry of the way we think executives should be, which is not big shots, you know, not uh, egomaniacs, but you're in service of all these people. Now, how can you best serve them? Now, do you need somebody to do that? I know how to do that. Yes, I do. So that was kind of the way we talked ourselves into it. Mm -hmm. And when you, when, you, when you look at Ford, there's so much history at Ford. Um, oh my God. I mean, tons of history at Ford, the Model T, the IPO, the Mustang, um, and you told me about a very, very interesting Mustang-inspired car that's coming. You can talk about that. You know, Ford weathered the financial crisis as the only U.S. car company to not go through bankruptcy during the financial crisis. And there's a long history between Ford and Goldman Sachs, a long, you know, long, very powerful history. You know, you, you come into a company, and now, in, and you say you're talking about your, your in service of the people, and you're also in service of the brand, and you're also in service of the history. No question. You know, as, you came into, as you came into the company, how did you think about all that? I just gave a talk uh, three weeks ago to the, the global management team, and I decided to draw on something that would resonate with the community here, is that Henry Ford was the ultimate disruptor. Mm -hmm. So you've got to go back in time and play this game in your head that there's no River Rouge. This is, this, this is the industrial complex that had 100,000 employees at its peak, where ore was rail, co rail card in, smelted and changed into iron and steel. And I mean, it was so vertically integrated, that's why it was so big. He bet the farm for this before we had the demand that mm -hmm. we're talking about, mm -hmm. you know. And, and so, what I think about is if he were alive today, he would be looking at this step function and shift of the things the vehicles are gonna do and say, this is my opportunity. He wouldn't look back at it and say, 
I'm happy with the way it all grew up. I don't think he would be happy. He was a staunch environmentalist. So, you know, as I stare at my responsibility, I'm thinking the roots here go deep in terms of the kind of leader he was and what he stood for and the kind of things in the world that we need to address. Um, he built an incredible uh, uh, culture of loyalty. So when, when I walked into the company, I think it's, well, John L. Weinberg was the one who took uh, Ford public. He was going down the road calling on the Steelcase families too. They, when we were going public, he said, you gotta go to Goldman because of John L. I remember the, the chairman telling me that. Well, uh, when, when you think about uh, the number of families that perpetuated their employment at Ford, you would be shocked. Right. So, uh, I mean, I have third and fourth generation people. So this, I wanna marry these two thoughts. I'm in service of people who believe the company is theirs, not mm -hmm. the Ford's. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing as you leap through his history, he made a lot of mistakes that Bill has, you know, spoken to. He was an environmentalist, but you know, they didn't understand they were polluting in those days, mm -hmm. but he was a naturalist. Mm -hmm. um, well, Bill Ford was the first one, and I was at Steelcase running this, that thought you can make an industrial company, company environmentally sensitive. Now that looks like a throwaway maybe to the younger folks today. But it's you not. You cannot imagine how hard how that was. How far that would have been, how hard that would have How been. hard that was. Yeah. Um, so we both had the same eco-architect that was working for us. Um, so these, these values kind of connected. Now, I haven't gotten to the problem yet, which is Bill, Bill gave a TED talk in 2011. I was a, I've been to TED for 30 years in a row. And I wasn't on the board yet, and he said, if we cut and paste the current transportation system that we have in Western uh, economies as Asia grows, because Asia is the biggest car market now, we will shut down the world. So here's the great-grandson of really the modern, you know, the modern voice for automotive saying, we can't build the old system the way we did. Mm -hmm. I was so inspired by that that I want to talk more to you guys about that today. Is what's the system of the future that has blue ovals all over it, mm -hmm. that's environmentally responsible, that gets rid of the tyranny of traffic, changes the way you think about taking care of disaffected people. My mother had Alzheimer's, she couldn't get to the doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, we, he and I have a vision of how we do that, and it's really exciting. You know, cars, it strikes me, and I might have this wrong, so, so please tell me differently. Cars are something that people consume, lots of people have, but if you really look over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, the technology really hasn't gotten cheaper. It's not on a power curve. On that... a power curve, yeah. But when you think now about where we're going, you know, shouldn't this be a product if, if we look, you know, near or far, where the cost of access to this should plummet based on the amount of technology that's getting loaded into where we're headed. Is that, is that a good thesis or it, am, I, am I wrong about no, that? No, you're not wrong. In fact, it's the basis for Uber and Lyft's valuation, right? Mm -hmm. Is that you're gonna give up your vehicle for a taxi. That is part of the thesis. That is part of the thesis. Okay. And so, so underpinning that is in Moore's Law, there's two sides of the coin, right? So there's a cost curve and there's a power curve. So. Uh, 1,000 becomes, 10,000 becomes 100,000. In that same period, it's, it's, it's deriving its cost savings, right? So this is true of cars in the future. They haven't 
they haven't generated what you're talk, talked about until now. I get a letter, I swear to you, last night I went through five letters. Mm. There are pictures of people's cars all crushed up and they survived yeah. in Ford vehicles. And they want to thank me, you know, on behalf of all the employees. But, but what I say is the future is this car won't crash. It won't crash, yeah. It's so intelligent it can't really crash. And then when it can't crash, guess what its weight is? Less. Yeah, so now we start to design the car that you just talked about. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and now the question is, which comes first or second? Well, the intelligent stuff we're working on, the JV that, that we just announced with uh, Volkswagen is in a startup that we created that's building autonomous technology. We gotta get that right at the edge. It's more in the near and far, and we'll bring it back and backward integrate it into owned vehicles. So I have an argument with, not with Goldman folks, but others who follow us and say, Uber and Lyft are really, they may be great customers of ours, and they'll have a product niche, but I don't believe people are gonna give up their vehicles. Now, how do I know that? Because Dan Ariely, behavioral economist, mm -hmm. says, name a product that sits 90% of the time that you borrow money to say you own. It's, it's a signaling thing for humans to have the control and freedom to say that vehicle's mine. Well, I, I obviously don't have your 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 time or grounding, you know, in in the information, the data that leads to that conclusion. But just intuitively, and I've said this for years, yeah. I'm I'm not a believer that everybody gives up their car ownership yeah. and the freedom that's associated with it, and and um, the sense of reward that comes from it. That doesn't mean, as you point out, there won't be evolution, and New York might be different than Milwaukee. Um, but it's, it's, it's going to be an evolution. It's not going to be as straight a line as the, the pundits that are the big bulls on the, the one side. And when you add to that, David, uh, they, my prop, my phone is, you know, over off the side here, but I would hold it up for you, and I'd go to the app called Ford Pass, and on there you would see my F-150 pickup truck, which I could push the button right here and start it back in Detroit. It's, Can you move it? That's, com that's coming. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it has no, to be. No, it has to be. It has to be, right? But I mean, something more pedestrian is the, the polar vortex. Right. Remember how cold it got? Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, I, you know, all my real estate assets are in West Michigan because where I spent most of my life, but I have a condo in Ann Arbor. I get up, it's so freezing. I'm freezing. Oh, turn the car on. Let it I, heat up. I Let heat it defrost. It. Yeah. Absolutely. But here's the problem. The garage doors close. Yeah, open the garage door. Okay, well, you have to go there and freeze to do that. Not, well, you're, not you're to not, have to go outside. I but, mean, God, but, I can sit in my bedroom. I can turn on the lights. I can turn on the air. I can turn on the television. I'm sure I can open the garage door if I had one, right? You can. Yeah. You can. Uh, Chamberlain has an app. like. Yeah. But the beauty would be I just touch the Ford app. And it and opens it, up the garage And it door. knows that sure, it can it's handshake. All, it's all linked. It's yeah, APIs. Absolutely. It's all APIs connected. Yeah. It's all connected. And yeah. somebody said to me, well, Jim, what if it's not in the garage and you open the garage door? It will know yeah. because of geocodes. It knows geocodes, where it is. It knows where the car is. Yeah. yeah. So, if you've got it outside the garage, it'll know not to open the garage. All right. So what we, you and I just invented was a reason that you're going to love your car even more. See, it's an extension of you in applications where you send it on errands or you configure it. You can configure it for, uh, I'm in my wild and crazy Michigan teen colors. I can change the interior of that vehicle for my party moment versus my Goldman Sachs carrying a customer around, you know, yeah, <laughs> moment. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, these kinds of things are real because of the way the car can represent itself back. Sure. 
No, you had me at hello because I like to drive. I mean, I just like to drive. Well, that is at the essence of it. So in January, Ford and Volkswagen announced a global alliance with, uh, with plans to develop commercial vans, medium-sized pickups, and you took that partnership recently, in the last couple of weeks, a further step forward. Last Friday, yeah. Last Friday. Talk, uh, talk a little bit. Talk a little bit about these partnerships and kind of the plan that you have with Volkswagen as you move forward and the implications you know, also for Ford and the industry. Yeah. Well, I, <clears throat> this would be fun to have a whole seminar on, like ask all of you that went to business schools to go backwards in time with me and think about competitive structures. I, I call this fitness. And um, it's, these are S-curves, as you remember studying. And what happens in S-curves is the design of a system reaches its epoch where it's dominant. And it's at that point, at its height, that the emergence on top of it is coming. So it's, it's, it's a problem because the enjoyment of the success of your system is blinding you. Uh, these are the people at Santa Fe Institute that I follow. And there's a perverse law, which is you're not willing to give up the virtues that made you great in the first S-curve to win in the second one. So from my perspective, I think Ford's in an S-curve shift right now because of the intelligence of the vehicle, the thing that you and I were going back and forth on. And so the interpretation here is how do you make the relationship of the intelligence of the vehicle and the edge or the internet of things such that customers benefit? When you look at the industrial models behind that, auto companies um, are some of the most politically uh, intense uh, commitments in, in countries around the world. I say this with humility, I can get in to see prime ministers, you know, if they thought we were coming to build a factory, you know, they'd have sure. a band. Yeah. And, um, well, we have way too much capacity in the industry for what you and I are talking about, principally because the productivity has gotten better, not the demand's gotten bigger. Um, and back to the business school game, as we'd say, if you were building an industrial company today, how could you create the value added without all the capital tied up? So we're, in your world, we may be one of the more intensive capital businesses. Like, I'm looking at the five-year thing, and it's, it's over 100 billion, you know, and most of it's, all of it's generated internally. Yep. So an obvious question would be, how do you do that? Now, the, the industrialization of car manufacturing is an advantage. There's a great competitor out west who has trouble building vehicles. So it isn't that we uh, don't treasure our ability to do that. But what we reasoned is in this new world, uh, there's a commoditization of some of this. It actually already started when the supply chain got de-verticalized. So when you're in college, it used to be vertically integrated. It got de-verticalized. It now needs to feel more vertically integrated, except you don't have to own all parts. And that's what these alliances feel like. Particularly in Europe, when I ran Steelcase, I now, Carly Fiorina, I knew really well at HP, you know, most companies struggle to try and get the scale in Europe, it's because the country structure made you fragment your industrialization. Mm -hmm. So you gotta try and get that to pull back together where it feels uh, homogeneous. And so the, the social policies in Europe make that difficult. Right. But, but we're committed to those employees, so this, this is a way to share costs without worrying that you'll get confused as a customer. You won't see this. 
and particularly in new platforms, but we're building uh, three products for them that'll have a VW badge on them, and they'll be making a product or two for us one day uh, in this EV world for Europe. They'll have a Ford, have a Ford badge. Yeah, and uh, that's how it started, <clears throat> uh, but I, I'm not the first one that have done something like this, but I think this is seminal in that the platform of vehicles that VW and Ford control will be close to 18 million in today's sale, 18 million vehicles. Mm -hmm. So if you're gonna put a technology in there, you, and you got an instant adoption like that, yeah. you don't, you know, we won't have that all at once. It guarantees some of these things. A, a corollary would be when the Android was being built, they had to fight their way to get that platform into the cell, uh, mm -hmm. your smartphone people. Uh, we took a page out of that and said, we don't wanna, we don't wanna invest $10 billion in autonomy and only have our vehicles uh, as, as the receivers of that. Yeah. Spread it across the platform. There's more to it uh, over time than that, but I would just say to you that the other cool thing is we're family controlled and we're not for sale and we don't want to merge. And, and, be, and uh, Chrysler and Daimler didn't work out. These are hard things to do. Yeah. So this gives us a chance to have the advantages of being independent and, and together in some ways. On, yeah. And the way we reasoned it is project centered. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to worry about their HR policies and mine. I mean, they've got to be a good company. They build cars together. We, yeah, we have this project, yeah, this project, this, project, and, this project. And those are going really well right now. That's great to hear. So talk a little bit about both electric and autonomous. And what are the trends that we can expect to see over the next decade? So this is a technology that will change our lives as much as anything in history. I just want you to know this. I mean... In your world, in strategy and investment banking, you've got to ask yourself about logistics infrastructures in the future that have autonomy part of it. Because goods today are configured in piles because they can't move. And you're trying to guess. In the future, very different. You can have, you can have little things moving, you can have big things moving. I even told my team, imagine this isn't real, but imagine your cornflakes are shipped on an object that drives into the store and becomes the presentation, and then when it's empty, it drives out to go get itself. No one ever touches it. Mm -hmm. If we think stores are still the place that people will shop. So autonomy is by far one of the biggest things. In the system that supports it is $11 trillion, inclusive of the autonomy. So this, mm -hmm. there's, you find hard, uh, it's a hard case to make for something else that's as big. This is why all the tech companies are interested in this, because it's bigger than computing was mm -hmm. as it was starting. And it's because of the penetration with humans. That's the, the reason that makes sure. it so big. So I, I'm just making a case for how powerful it is. Talk about EV then. In global terms, it's less than 4% of the sales. You know, today in 2019, it's projected to get to 25 to 30% in the next five to eight years and, t and stop there. The, the, the chemistry of um, gasoline and the physics of electricity, uh, a fun bar bet, is which one pollutes more? And then you have to do the analysis, what we call wheel to well. So the, it's the power plants that produce the electricity that the car uses that pollutes more than the uh, uh, exhaust from the car that's coming from uh, gasoline 
It's not me taking an environmental position because what I told David before we started it, Bill and I have written a treatise that in 12 years we're going to be carbon neutral. We'll meet the Paris Accord. Um, and the way we do that is a mixture of technologies that let you go full electric or use hybrids. You can use hybrids in open air spaces that, and it doesn't cause a problem. It's parts per million. You get in the city like New York and in the air movement, it's a problem. Concentration is toxic. So electric, in the way that it's, it's made its statement, uh, isn't as clean as represented. If we get to all natural uh, energy production, it, it is. Um, but the workloads that you put these vehicles into, they, the, the cost per output of energy and gasoline is still fractionally much better than electric. So that's part of the, the challenge here. The way Jim Hackett settled this, David, because the company was swirling on this when I got in, and it's why you know our customers aren't asking for them, is we decided to electrify the more popular platforms, but not 100%. So mm -hmm. we have a portfolio strategy. Sure. And we call it a propulsion strategy. So we have hybrids, ICEs, that's internal combustion engine, and electrics inside an F-150. You get to pick which one you want. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you'll have an electric pickup truck. I've actually right. tested it. It is unbelievable because the size lets us put more batteries in it. Yeah. And it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So just to wrap up, a couple of quick lightning questions. Your favorite car to drive? Right now, it's a toss-up. Okay. So there's the crazy Jim, the Mustang, uh -huh. you know, when I'm cruising around Grand Haven, Michigan, and then the responsible Jim, the F-150. The F-150. Your favorite place to drive? Well, I'm like you. I, I don't get to, I mean, we got real jobs, right? So it's, <laughs> it's it, you know what it is? It's driving from Dearborn back to West Michigan, because, you know, I kind of hit this area where the environment changed, like you going up the coast uh, to a summer place. So I love that. If you could meet one person who's one person in history, live or dead, who would it be? I, it, it would have to be Martin Luther King. And the reason is, you know, let's talk to somebody where the obvious conflict is there, like, you know, what he's feeling, and he walks into the mouth of the lion to take it on. Yeah. And, and you go, what, what compelled you to stand in service of others? That, that, that really would be what I'd want to ask him. Great example. Best advice you ever received? When I took the week to pick the job at Steelcase, mm -hmm. I went to somebody who was kind of an older man. Mm -hmm. I, I, have, I think there's a great market for older people to be younger people's advisors. Let me just say that. <laughs> and he was in his late 80s. And I said, I'm really struggling over this. I, got, I have a wonderful wife. I have two young kids. I'm really loving this startup. And I, I don't want to wear a tie, you know? And, and I didn't back in those days. And he said, look, when you were born, of course, you're not going to remember this, Jim. Did your mother say, if you become a CEO, I will love you more? I said, no. She didn't say that. He said, so therefore, your value as a person has nothing to do with what you're going to go do. And we got it backwards in the world today. We think the value is because of what we're doing. It has nothing to do with that. It's, it's about who we are. And when he said that to me, I felt this great release that I could walk in and be the CEO and still be who I am. And I've never forgotten that.
It's a great piece of advice. Yeah. A great piece of advice. On that note, I just say a big thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on July 16th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.